Well, we kick off a new series today. It's called Far Greater. Each week's gonna sound like this, far greater than blank. And we're gonna get into this morning's message in just a moment, but I wanna prep it for you. I wanna set the stage and frame it. Uh, there is something far greater for you in this season than tinsel and cocoa and flashing lights and some presents under the tree. There is something far greater for you than all you'll receive from culture. I want you today Carrying on from last Sunday, holiday hacks from spiritual growth, I want you to be released from the holiday pressure and the burdens of Christmas that culture often places on us. Your kids do not need a perfect Christmas, they need a perfect Savior. And that is what this season is all about. Getting in the presence of God, abiding with him, putting the sacred above the special, and keeping him prioritized in our hearts. The good news we're all searching for, it cannot be put on a credit card, and it can't fit in a stocking. You are in the right place today. Thank you for being in church on a foggy, rainy, it's not a winter wonderland out there, it's a a wet wonderland out there, and you made your way here, and I'm so glad you're with us. Those that are watching online, God is ready to meet with you right in your home, as you're driving in your car, in your living room, wherever you're watching this today, I believe the Lord has something to say to you. In John chapter 1, we read about John the Baptist, a forerunner to Christ. He's preparing people's hearts for Jesus. People asked him as they saw him bringing revival, bringing an awakening, stirring people's hearts to prepare them for the Lord, calling them back to their faith and calling them to repentance. They said, in whose authority are you ministering? Who has sent you out here? Why are you doing this? And John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I am not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. The six and seven-year-old soccer team I coached this fall couldn't go two minutes without a player's shoe becoming untied. I realized that 90% of coaching was shoe-tying duty. It was all I was doing was getting down on my knees, stopping practice, in the middle of the game, just getting down on my knees and helping kids tie their shoes. I actually had to uh, call a parent huddle. I love parent huddles. We huddle with the kids, but we often had to do parent huddles. And I called a parent huddle and just said, everyone, you need to double knot your kids' shoes. You have two options. You can double knot or triple knot, but no more single knotting because this is all we're doing is tying these kids' shoes. It didn't help. Um, So... We're going through the season, and, uh, and it became clear to me that this was, this was my purpose as coach of this team. We were losing most of our games. We won one game, and um, I just sensed that we might not win another game this year, but by the end of this season, we're going to get these kids' shoes tied, and they're not going to come untied. So anytime a kid's shoe came untied after my parent huddle, I put four or five knots in their shoe. And I was like, you know what, when the parents get home and they realize their kid's shoe is this big knotted mess, they're going to learn their lesson and they're going to come prepared and have these kids' shoes tied. So so that became our goal. And, um, And it didn't matter if we won another game. 
and it didn't matter if we kicked the ball into our own goal right before the final whistle, which happened, and we lost uh, games that way, but we learned how to tie those shoes. And as much of an honor as it was to tie Connor and Malia and Braylon's shoes over and over again, I really reached my limit, and I felt like I was done. I was ready to hang up the clipboard and my coaching whistle um, because I just felt like I think I, I hit my threshold, and I had enough of that. The shoe-tying service that I was providing got old. I'm not saying I'm better than that or I'm above it or these kids aren't precious, darling, baby angels. I just kind of, I hit, week nine, I hit my limit. And as I read what John the Baptist says about Jesus and how he chooses to describe him. He says, hey, I'm not even worthy to be the shoelace helper for Jesus. Something everybody can do, right? My, my seven-year-old can tie shoes well, especially after this soccer season. I'm not even worthy to be the shoelace helper, to be on shoe tying duty for Jesus. Forget my gifts, forget how great I think I am, how I want God to use me in his kingdom. I'm not even worthy to do what the servants do when you walk in to a home, to handle your shoes, to wash your feet. I'm not worthy for that. What we see Jesus do full circle on the last uh, night of his ministry at the last supper, how he gets down on his knees, takes a towel and washes his disciples' feet. I'm not even worthy to do what Jesus is gonna demonstrate for us as the servant of all. I brought these shoelaces today to remind us of that as we go into this season. There is one here that is far greater than you and me, that's far greater than all the Christmas hype, that's far greater than all our Christmas decor and every song we're gonna sing. There's someone whose presence comes into the room and it doesn't matter what we think is too big for Jesus or too hard for Jesus or beyond Jesus because there's one who is here that is far greater and everything else is not even worthy to touch Jesus' shoelaces. And when we walk into this Christmas season, with that understanding, we understand that there is power and glory in the room every time we gather. Matthew eleven eleven said, I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said that. The greatest men of God and women of God that the world has produced are still unworthy to be shoelace helper. He's the deliverer. I'm not gonna waste my ministry talking about myself, talking about the great things about Trinity, which they are great and we love them. I'm not gonna waste our time pointing to ourselves, but pointing to his supremacy. Someone has shown up before our eyes and we shouldn't even have shoelace privileges. He is far greater than any other figure that has appeared in the universe and everything rests on him. Matthew 1.1 is going to begin our text today. We're going to read a genealogy, and as you're taking notes, I want you to title this message, Jesus is far greater than my past. He's far greater than my past. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how Matthew starts out his gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That does not get a lot of people excited when you get ready to read a family tree list or some sort, of, um, some sort of archaic documentation, reading through history with a lot of names you're, you may be unfamiliar with. That doesn't excite us necessarily, but we need to understand that first century Jews open up this text, they read the first line, and, and Matthew is throwing water right in their face. Matthew is hitting them with something compelling and something provocative from word one. 
I want to break this, just this first line down for you a little bit. It says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, you need to know something very peculiar and interesting about the word choice that Matthew uses. We lose it in the English, but in the Greek, he does not use the word genealogy here. We see the word genealogy. It's genealogia. We see it in 1 Timothy. We see it in Titus. We see it over and over again in the New Testament. That's not the word he uses. In fact, he uses the word geneseos, which means Genesis. Genesis. This is the record of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is this book is a new Genesis, a new beginning that the universe, the cosmos, is going to experience inside this man. There's a new Genesis that I want to roll out for you. And, uh, and he says it's the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And Christ is not Jesus's last name. He's not Mr. Christ. Although we do use it um, as a title, we do use it uh, as uh, a naming device for Jesus throughout the Bible. It is the New Testament word, Christ is the New Testament word for Mashiach in the Hebrew to mean Messiah or anointed one. And there's a double emphasis here because Matthew says this is the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Whenever you hear that phrase, the son of David, you're called back, especially if you're a first century Jew, you're called back to the repeated promises of God that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, would come from the house of David. Scriptures like 2 Samuel 7, uh, 12 and 13, where he promises to establish a descendant's throne that will rule the kingdom forever. In Isaiah 11, where he says, the ultimate branch will come up, it will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's father. And in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, where it says, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. In fact, uh, because David's family roots uh, had come from Nazareth, there is a uh, a really beautiful meaning there, and I don't know that you know it, but I want to share it with you today. Nazareth comes from the word netzer, which means shoot or branch. So in those days when someone was born in Bethlehem when, or when someone was born in Nazareth, people would look deeply and with scrutiny at their family genealogy, at their record. There was a lot of messianic excitement uh, and intrigue during this time. There was an expectation that the Messiah would show up. And so people would look at the family tree. They would look at this descendants line. Now today, only 47% of Americans can name all four of their grandparents. Isn't that sad? 47% of Americans. Come on, guys. We got to do better than that. And only 4% of Americans can name all eight of their great-grandparents. That is, uh, that is something that we don't do as much work on today as they did back then when they memorized and knew their family trees. That's a fun project to do with your kids, to do with your grandkids this holiday season. But when a first century Jew was hearing this first line, he is understanding that he is with double emphasis saying Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David and Jesus the Christ. He is the Messiah, double emphasis, a doublet. Whenever we see that in scripture, it, it means stop 
pay extra attention to this. God is trying to drive something key and core home in our souls. That's called a doublet. And there's only a few times in scripture we see something beyond a doublet for emphasis. We call that a triplet. And you know one of them, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's only a few times where we see this repetition. And whenever we see it, we want to pay attention. Now, thirdly, he says he is the son of Abraham. Not saying he will be Jewish. He's saying that he will be the son of Abraham, the truest and ultimate Israelite. Any other spiritual recipients of God's blessing that comes through Israel will have to receive it through Jesus. He is the son of Abraham. So to sum up verse one, the universe will find a new Genesis inside Jesus, the true Israelite, the true Messiah. That's how Matthew starts off this genealogical list. Let's, uh, let's peer into this right now. And again, this isn't archaic data. There's connotations and understandings that the Jews who heard this would have 12 years of study, would have almost every Jew memorizing the Tanakh, the, the scripture, the uh, Hebrew Bible. And so as they're hearing these names, there's stories and there's imagery and there's messaging that they're picking up as they go through this genealogy that Matthew has prepared. We're going to read all these generations right now. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We're going to come back to them later. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So here we see the first set of 14 generations that Matthew includes. We're going to have three sets of 14. First set was Abraham to David. Now we're going to go David to the exile. Solomon, David was the father of Solomon by the uh, wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph, or your Bible might say Asa. This is not Asaph who, who wrote a quarter of our Psalms. This is King Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the most evil king that Israel ever knew, that ever reigned. Um, and Amos, uh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, or your, your Bible might say Ammon. This is not the Amos, the prophet that spoke of the kingdom of God, the king that's coming to rule the kingdom of God. This is King Ammon, also known as Amos. Um, and Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So here's our second set of 14. Now going from the exile all the way to the Messiah. Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. 
Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation, 14, and from the deportation to the Christ, 14 generations. And right after this, Matthew tells us that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? We just read about them. We just read generation after generation after generation. And we're going to look at some of those generations now. Matthew lays things out this way on purpose to address an elephant in the room when it came to uh, the messiahship of Jesus. The elephant in the room was this. There were two qualifications to be the messiah, two big qualifications. One, you're in the lineage of David coming that branch of Jesse, that shoot from David. And the second one was that you are not in the lineage of Jeconiah. Remember Jeconiah, whose name we read earlier, uh, who totally sold out and surrender his, surrendered his people and ba- the Babylonians took them into exile. Jeconiah was told uh, in Jeremiah twenty two twenty four that none of his children would succeed in ruling the kingdom of Israel. So people would think about this carpenter's son from Galilee and immediately think, knowing the genealogy, isn't he disqualified because of the Jeconiah problem? And also, isn't he disqualified because of his suspicious birth? Mary was pregnant. All of a sudden, there's this quick wedding. What was going on there? That doesn't sound like the Messiah to me. So Matthew purposefully arranges this genealogy to immediately address the elephant in the room, and it's helpful for us today, too. He wants us to quickly see Joseph is not in the bloodline of the Messiah. Now, Joseph is, the, uh, is there in the legal lineage of Jesus. He's there in the uh, legacy, cultural ancestry of Jesus, but he is not in the actual bloodline of the Messiah. He, he puts it right out there for, for us to see that Jeconiah is not the father of Jesus. In his legal royal line, sure, but not in that birth bloodline, because it goes on Mary's side from David, not to Solomon, but from David to Nathan. And in Luke chapter 3, we see that actual bloodline genealogy. That's why there's two different genealogies in your Gospels. Um, but, but Matthew wants us to see that both are Jesus' heritage and genealogy, and all prophecy is satisfied. And what he does is he brings everybody forward to the edge of their seat. You've already said he's the son of David. You've already said he's Jesus the Christ, that there is a new genesis in him. But if Joseph's not his father, who is? See how Matthew brings everybody forward right to the virgin birth of Jesus? He wants us to reckon with this supernatural and miraculous conception, the virgin birth of Mary. There is uh, immediate theological messaging for first century Jews, yes, but there is extended messaging for us today, and I want to give you some observations now. The first is this, Jesus unties the knots of your past. Jesus unties the knots of your past. God gives us life and free will. 
It's like a ribbon or a rope, and we all want to tie a nice bow with our lives. We want to take what God's given us and produce something pleasant, something good, something clear, something powerful. Unfortunately, uh, we often take that ribbon and rope, and instead of tying a nice bow, we tie knots, a lot of knots. We tie as many knots as I tied in my soccer player's shoes. Every situation we have been in where we have done the wrong thing, we've tied a knot of sin. And let me tell you something about a knot of sin. You can't untie it. And I can't untie it. So often, the process of trying to untie that sin, it so easily entangles us and we end up tying more knots and more knots. I thought if I pushed this through here, then I could unravel this and up. I just created three more knots. What happens is we end up having to move on from situation to situation entirely because of the knotted mess behind us. Even the most rightly lived lives still have a jungle gym, spider's web of knots behind them. And and you look back and you say, well, I I had to give up on that section because, I mean, look at it. And I I was in too deep there. And and I I was really, I tried to get this right, but I I messed up. I made mistakes. Other people messed up. And so I just had to move on from that section. And now I'm here nodding up this section. And when we read through the genealogy of Jesus and, and the connotations and the stories that go along with these people, it is a checkered, that is a, that is a liberal, gracious word that I'm using. It is a checkered genealogy. It is a broken and disturbed legacy that Jesus came through. And as we read through some of these names, it's important for us to see that here comes Jesus out of a huge knotted mess. There's a spider's web coming behind Jesus as we read through this genealogy. It's problematic. Well, Matthew wants to tell us something. He says, hey, there is room for your past in God's story. There is room for you with all your mistakes and all your knots and all your mess in God's story. In fact, the power of God, when it's applied to that rope of your life, he can untie things you could never even touch. Things that you think are too powerful for God, they aren't even powerful enough to tie his shoelaces, to touch his sandals. And, um, and I want to highlight a few people in this genealogy. You may be familiar with uh, the story of the four women that are named. You know, it's immediately clear that Matthew is not just conveying data with how he's arranged this genealogy. Because customarily, there would just be a male list of names. It wouldn't include Ruth, and it wouldn't include Rahab. Tamar would not be mentioned, and we wouldn't have anything about Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. But Matthew intentionally includes these four women in Jesus' story, and at least three of these women are Canaanite people. They're not even Israelites, because Matthew immediately wants us to remember that this king that's coming to rule is going to be a blessing to all nations. He's going to bring freedom and deliverance and ultimate peace to everyone. And so uh, the four women included are not the mothers of Israel. They're not Sarah and Rebecca and Leah. Rather, he chooses Tamar, who was abandoned and sexually mistreated. Three husbands and a broken engagement. Can you imagine that Jesus could include the past of someone like that and untie the knots of their past sin and take their life in their brokenness and bring them into the story of glory? And then we see Rahab, Rahab was a prostitute. 
an outsider that became an insider because uh, her faith brought victory for all of Israel. And he wants to include Rahab's name in this story because he brought salvation and glory through her faith. Ruth, a Moabite, a, a people who were formed out of the incest of Lot's family. That's where the Moabites come from. They were hated by the Canaanites. They were hated by the Israelites. They were hated by everyone. They were the outsiders of the outsiders. Well, Ruth was willing to go to a land she didn't know, with a people she didn't know, by faith to serve a God that she didn't know. And God rewarded her for her faithfulness. Then we read about Bathsheba, the wife of a Hittite, Uriah the Hittite. He wasn't an Israelite. She was either, depending on your reading, she was either coerced or seduced by King David and then sees her husband murdered and her son die. How many of you know that there are folks that have adultery and they have death of a child and they have violence and murder in their story? Jesus says, there's room for you in my story. There's room for your past in my story. He is making a point that God loves to redeem the past. God loves to save the story. God loves to reclaim and restore. So we read about insecurity and lies. We read about sexual assault and murder. We read about pride, lust, anger, selfishness, idolatry, jealousy, half-heartedness. Okay, sure, God can redeem those things. God wants to include those things, but you don't know me. You don't know my situation. Well, let me just open it up for you a little more than just these, these four women that God included. He includes the most evil and vile people that ever led in Israel and ever led in Judah. I mentioned him earlier, but Manasseh, you know what God includes? You know what God includes in his story? He includes abortion. Could there be room for me in God's story if I've taken the life of a child? 2 Chronicles 33, Manasseh sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the image he had made, the image of himself, and he put it in God's temple. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. God will not exclude you because of how big your knot is. There is room for you in his story. If you're in the room and, and you're saying, Jesus can't handle my past, Matthew is telling you that your past cannot even handle Jesus' shoelaces. That's the power of our God. When Jesus puts on those sandals and he starts walking towards you, your past cannot stop him. Your past cannot keep him from you. He's inviting you to have a place in his family, in his story of glory. Second observation is that Jesus can tie a bow with your past. He can unravel it and repurpose it. He can bring good out of evil. He can, let, let me explain. God will not delete your history. 
When you're living in sin, when you're living in impurity, this is a phrase you might be familiar with. When you're uh, constantly viewing and looking at things that you were not created for and were not created for you, when you're continually getting trapped in that stuff, you may be hiding the trail that's behind you and trying to limit the wake of, of your lust, trying to limit the wake of things you shouldn't be involved in and, and deleting your history you might be a familiar uh, uh, action that you've done. Jesus does not delete history. Jesus redeems history. He doesn't want to whitewash your past. He doesn't want you to take your past and try to cover it up or manipulate it. He wants you to be honest about it. He's looking for humble and repentant people. God can take evil and he'll do a judo move on it and turn the weight of the evil and the power of evil back on itself and work out his plan for good. Genesis 50, 20 is a beautiful text that many of us know. Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. But here's the thing, it all had to be brought into the light for redemption to occur, for lives to be saved. He didn't say, you did evil, we're going to just go ahead and cut that evil out of the story, kick it out of the room, cut it out of your Bible, rip those pages out. No, Joseph is saying that God is bringing redemption because of what happened. He is repurposing it. He is bringing his intention to it, and now there's redemption. He wants to take the knots to make a bow. He wants to take the issues that have happened in the past, the broken circumstances, those things that you regret and those things that I regret, he wants to take them and use them, redeem them for his story. There is fruit from your past in God's story. Not in your own story, not in self-glory, there's, there's no fruit from your past. If you're just living for the nostalgia of what you experienced or what you did yesterday and Jesus has nothing to do with it, there's no spiritual fruit that's gonna happen from that. There's, there's nothing you're gonna bring into eternity with you from vain glory and self-glory in your own story. Your past has to meet God's present for there to be fruit. It has to be soaked in God's presence. It has to be found in Jesus for fruit to come from it. When you run from your past, when you hide your past, or when you manipulate your own escape from your past, it robs God of glory. Face it with faith and humility. Repent and release your testimony. Release your testimony of how God found you and where God found you, how Jesus showed up and how you're different today. He will bring good out of it. Don't pretend it didn't happen. God can't bless what we pretend. It doesn't matter what you've done. Big deal. Have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about his shoelaces? God is for you and this church is for you. And in the wisdom of Christ, you can still find usefulness for your gifts. Maybe you've done heinous things and disqualified yourself from certain areas of service. By the Holy Spirit, you can find with God's wisdom an area to still use your gifts. Your story's not over. Your life's not over. There's a future for you. There's an impact for you. He wants to use you. There's glory in your future. Some of us sometimes half believe in a half-hearted way. We think, okay, okay, God can untie my knots, but because of how much I've messed up. I've disqualified myself completely 
from him doing anything good with me ever again. No more knots, but, but no more bows. It's not true. It's a lie. He takes your sin, he throws it in the sea of forgetfulness. It doesn't mean your past doesn't matter anymore. It just means when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't evaluate you. He doesn't hang any consideration of you uh, uh, on your past. He doesn't take those mistakes you've made and use them as a lens to see your life. And he just looks at you through the love and the forgiveness and the redemption of Jesus Christ. Those consequences of your sin are under the blood of Christ. I like the way Warren Wearsby says this. He says, Jesus turns your past from an anchor into a rudder. God can use those knots. He can use that testimony. We serve a present tense, I am God. And like I said, your past becomes redemptive when it is placed in God's present, when they collide with one another. Not when you bring it as baggage and try to hide it, and put it under the rug and hide it under the bed and just bring it with you through your future. No, you have to lay it at the feet of Jesus. Your story, you do not have a right to keep that from God. Your testimony belongs to him. If he wants to use it this way, let him use it this way. If he wants to use it that way, let him use it that way. But don't hold it back. Give it to him as an offering. His present is saying something better than your past. And, and that's what matters now. Your past has no more power. What has power is who he is today. They don't have the power to steal from you anymore. Your past can't rob you anymore. Your past can't pester you and your past can't pastor you when you give it to Jesus. It doesn't guide you anymore. It's not that light that says, well, you should go this way, but remember what you've done. Remember who you were, remember who you've been. You need to go this way. That path that God's carved out for you, you're not good enough for it. It's not for you anymore. Don't let your past pastor you that way, shepherd you that way. Don't let it nag your thoughts and pester your soul. Give it to Jesus. And think not about who you've been and where you were, but think about who God is. He is a present tense God. He says, I am. Not I was, I am. Like Jacob and Tamar, you've been denied affection. Maybe you've been denied acceptance like Jacob, feeling like he had to put Esau's hair in, in Esau's clothes, in Esau's scent, with Esau's recipe so that he could have acceptance and approval. Maybe you've experienced that kind of life and, and you've been left alone and you're in need. And Jesus is saying today that I am the bread of life. Maybe you're like Josiah. You were born into a pagan and a dark spiritual culture. Maybe it was Islam. Maybe it was Hinduism. Maybe it was Mormonism. Maybe it was atheism. You were born into a family and this was their culture. And you're finding that your expectation and your experience in that belief system are two different things and you want more. There's good news for you. Just like Josiah, you can hear Jesus saying today that I I am the light of the world. Like Rahab, maybe you found yourself an enemy of God, far from him. Maybe you're not sure if there's any way for an outsider to become an insider. There's a wall between you. It's that wall of Jericho that, that Rahab was living inside. And Jesus says today, I am the door. Maybe you're like Ruth, a foreigner who has only lost who only knows the things that she had lost without still waters in her life, without green pastures in her life. And Jesus says, watch this, Ruth. I am the good shepherd. I'm gonna bring restoration to you.
He's a present tense God. Mm. But maybe you feel like you're a step beyond these folks. You're like Manasseh. You've aborted and you've destroyed your children, your marriage, your reputation, and your career. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not over. Your past beats his present. Hold on. Maybe you walk in and you're not this story of brokenness and mess and you think pretty highly of yourself. Maybe you're walking in with King David crowns and a lot of acclaim and things are blessed in your life and you've seen prosperity and you're clever, you're high achieving and you're successful, but your soul is crying out for satisfaction and you can't find it anywhere else. And you hear Jesus saying today, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life for you. There's something more for, for you than yourself. Maybe you're like Jehoshaphat in in Jesus' genealogy. Your treaties have all failed and everyone you depended on turned into your enemies. And Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. I am your source. Abide with me, not with the culture. Abide with me, not to all these other hands you think are gonna feed you. I have victory for you. I have all you need, Jehoshaphat. I'm the true vine. When your past meets God's present, you are participating in the life of God. Paul says it this way, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. My story doesn't have a little chapter about God. All of my story, I pick it up, I walk it to the altar, and I place it in Jesus' story. It's all found in Jesus. To live is Christ. My thoughts, my actions, my attitudes, my behavior, it's all about what he wants. It's all about his will. Would you stand with me today? This is a good place for us to understand I'm not the main character. I'm not even the author. The Holy Spirit's the author. Jesus is the main character. I'm more or less the stage crew. What can I move around, Jesus? Put me in the shadows, that's fine. It's about your story in me. I like the way John Mark Comer says it. He says, we are involved in God's story to the degree we open our hearts to his authorship. Someone's listening today and you've had the pen in your hand and you've been center stage for far too long. You found yourself disillusioned, you found yourself broken and you found yourself empty and you don't realize that the main character was listed at the end of the genealogy there. His name is Jesus, it's about him and you can be found in his story. He has so much for you. This is a a cool thing in the way Matthew arranged the genealogy. There's six sets of seven right? Three sets of 14, saying this generation to that, this generation to that. And if you know what the first century Jews knew when they read this, they immediately saw that seven is the number of completion. On the seventh day, God created rest and he rested. On the seventh day, we Sabbath. We rest in the peace and the wholeness of God. And then we do the rest of our work that week out of that peace and wholeness. Not that we become whole because we worked hard enough, but we're already whole in Jesus. Every seven years, they rotated the fields. And after the seventh seven, something happened called the year of Jubilee. It was kind of like where social justice and capitalism met 
in a way that has never occurred since. People's debts were satisfied. People who were enslaved and indentured servants became free and property returned to every single family so that every tribe and clan and family to which everybody could trace themselves back to had something, had a place and got a fresh start. But Jesus shows up as the first generation in that seventh set. Six sets of seven have passed. So he is starting the seventh set, the Jubilee of Jubilees, to bring freedom to everyone, to pay every single debt, to pay our ransom, to bring us a Sabbath rest that we could experience in our souls. That's what Matthew's genealogy is communicating, that there's a savior for your story. He's ready to redeem it. He's got a great future for you. And if you're in the room and you're ready for that today, you're ready to give your life to him and be found in a story, there's a door that you have to walk through. It's the door of the blood of Jesus Christ where you, you don't hide your sin, you recognize you've fallen short of the glory of God. You've offended God's heart and rebelled against him. You repent, you invite him into your life, you receive his salvation and you choose to follow him every day. You acknowledge him with all of your life. It's not an easy choice. Sometimes we water it down. It's costly. It's free, but it costs us everything. And we give our lives to Jesus in that way. If you're ready, the beginning of Christmas season, Jesus celebrates birthday month, I believe that. You're ready on this first December 3rd, this first Sunday of our Advent season. You're ready to give your life to Jesus Christ. I wanna remember you as I pray today. If that's you, would you lift up your hand? I just wanna remember you as I pray. You're making that choice today. You're saying, God, thank you. You're saying, God, restore me, put me in your story. Amen, thank you. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we honor you today, God, and we thank you for making room for people like us, for taking a big knotted spider web of brokenness and stepping into it, God. Lord, you came to save your people from their sins, not to just be the cherry on top, God, but to flip everything upside down that we could have a new genesis in you, the true Messiah. Today, I pray that your forgiveness would flood someone's heart, all the burden and weight of their sin, all their shame and guilt. God, all the brokenness they've carried, lift it off of them and place it on yourself, Lord, and let them know for the first time in their soul, the abundant life of your Holy Spirit as you resurrect their soul from death to life. God, I thank you for your salvation flow in each person that would confess you today and let them bear fruit as your disciple. We love you, Jesus. And, and God, for each person in the place that's been walking with you, they're in the middle of a chapter of their story, and maybe it's veered off track. Maybe this chapter isn't about your glory. It's become about their glory. God, align their heart today with you. Let them become a, a bent knee worshiper just at your feet, not worthy to tie your shoelaces, God. And where we need to see your power, God, when something says it's greater than you, in our lives, our past thinks it's greater than you, it's too messed up. God, I pray that you would come against a situation today, come against an enemy, an obstacle, a problem, a crisis, and bring your miracle power. Walk into the room, Jesus, and change it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Would you worship with us today? Let's sing this together.